0: If you haven't opened your Bibles already to Matthew 28, I invite you to do so. Matthew 28, verses 5 through 7 will be our key text this morning as we open God's Word and pray that He opens our heart and our understanding. So I couldn't help but Google it because, you know, when you don't know the answer in this day and time, you Google something, right? I mean, you can put it on Facebook and ask, but you can Google. So I I Googled it and I... Googled, where did April Fool's Day come from? And I think I came up with a little bit of an April Fool's on that answer, too, even though it was from somewhat reputable history.com. And history.com said, on this day in 1700, English pranksters began popularizing the annual tradition of April Fool's Days by playing practical jokes on each other's. Although the day, also called April Fool's Day, has been celebrated for several centuries by different cultures, its exact origin remains a mystery. So that part's the truth. The first part, 1700, how could you know? Some historians speculate that April Fool's Day dates back to 1582, when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, as called for by the Council of Trent in 1563. People were slow to get the news or failed to recognize the start of the new year had moved to January 1 and continued to celebrate it during the last week of March through April 1. And these folks that were slow on that news became the butt of jokes and hoaxes. So these pranks have including paper fish being placed on the back and referred to as poisson de, de, de avril. I don't speak French. My children could correct me. April fish. This symbolize a young, easily caught fish or a gullible person. Historians have also linked April Fool's Day to festivities such as Hilaria, which was celebrated in ancient Rome and at the end of March and involved people dressing up in disguises. There's also specula- speculation that April Fool's Day was tied to the vernal equinox or the last day of spring in the northern hemisphere when Mother Nature fooled people with changing, unpredictable weather. Welcome to springtime in Nebraska. I don't know about you, I have flowers blooming in my flower bed, but I got snow on top of them today. April Fool's Day spread throughout Britain during the 18th century. In Scotland, the tradition became a two day event, starting with the hunting the galk, in which people were sent on funny, phony errands. Galk is a word meaning a cuckoo bird or a symbol for a fool. And followed by the tally day, which involved pranks played on people's dear ears, such as pinning fake tales or kick me signs. I thought this all happened when I was in about third grade, but this was going on in 1852, they're telling me now. In modern times, people have gone to great lengths to create elaborate April Fool's Day hoaxes. Newspapers, radio, TV stations, websites have participated in April 1st tradition of reporting outrageous fictional claims that have fooled their audiences. In 1957, the BBC reported that Swiss farmers were experiencing a record spaghetti crop and showed people of uh, footage of people harvesting noodles from trees. Numerous viewers were fooled. In 1985, Sports Illustrated tricked many of its readers when it ran a made-up article about a rookie pitcher named Sid Finch who could throw a baseball 168 miles an hour. In 1996, some of us may remember this one, Taco Bell, the fast food chain, duped people in an announcement that it agreed to purchase Philadelphia's Liberty Bell. Yes, and it intended to rename it the Taco Liberty Bell. In 1998, Burger King marketed a left-handed Whopper, and people actually went into the store requesting one. (laughs) No matter what, no matter when, all of us have at one time or another either played an April Fool's joke on somebody, even if it was just, aha, you know, trying to catch them with something, or we've been the butt of one. And we've been made to look foolish. And some folks may treat Christians that same way. They may think that, you know, you're you're studying the works of an ancient teacher, an old book with weird names and weird customs. It's all fables and all made up, and we can't back it up. And besides, that dude was killed on some crazy wooden torture device, and he was buried, and he rose again. Yeah, give me a break, right? A lot of different folks he appeared to. And the proof of the resurrection is dear ironclad. And so, in a sense, I'll assume that, that most of you here today believe, as I do, that Jesus is God's Son, and Jesus did rise again from the grave, as we consider this topic very simply, foolish, not Easter. Not Easter. And we'll look in Matthew 28, verses 5 through 7. But I want to show you our scripture memory verse for the month. As I was thinking and praying about where our church is at and where I believe God's called us to go, and we'll look at those things in the next four or five weeks in a sermon series called Growing Christ's Followers, Our Purpose, God brought me to this passage of Scripture. Now, we're not church in Judea, Galilee, or Samaria, but God, by His Spirit at different times, can impress Scriptures upon you and say, this one's for you, and this is what I firmly believe for our church. And let's read it together, Acts nine thirty one. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers, Acts 9, 31. So I'll refrain from preaching that one to you today. That'll be in a few weeks. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come together to open your word, we pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts. That whatever it is and however it is that we need to be convinced or encouraged or challenged or humbled or repentant or broken, that your word would speak to us and we would willingly lay down our ideas and our idols at your feet. And we would come before you the King of the whole world, the God of the universe, and ask that you would teach us. So, Father, now as we study, speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Matthew 28, I'll begin in verse 1. After the Sabbath... When we consider this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 5, there's a phrase that we can't pass up before we get into the meat of our text and our points for you to fill in the blanks if you're that type and you want to do that. And that's the phrase, do not be afraid. If you're familiar that every time in the Bible... It's recorded where every time an angel shows up as recorded in the Bible. The first phrase the angel says is something along the lines of do not be afraid. You get the idea that angels in some way or another had to be fearsome in their appearance. That when people saw them, they automatically... Absolutely, positively, knew without a doubt that this was not an earthly being, but somehow a supernatural being. Whether it was their size, whether it was their appearance, or as it describes here, clothes were as white as snow. His appearance was like lightning. So, like something out of a superhero movie, right? This angel sitting on the big stone that he had rolled away. But he says, Do not be afraid. You're not looking at an angel this morning. You might be looking at me, and I'm far from an angel. But, thank you, sweetheart. But, when we consider this passage of Scripture, I want all of us to start here. And if you didn't write it down, because I didn't tell you to, write it down right now. Write down, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid at the top of your sermon outline. And here's why I want you to write it down. The truth that we're going to talk about in our five main points of this sermon, five reasons why Easter is not foolish, is not something to be afraid of. It's something to have faith in and to trust because God said it and God did it and His word is true. Notice what the next phrase says. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And there are some of you here this morning that certainly that's the reason you're here. You're here to worship Jesus. You believe in Him. You know He saved you from your sins. And you know if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. There are some of you here this morning, however, that the only reason you're here is somebody else brought you. You're like, I wish this preacher would get done and I wish he'd stop talking about me right now. It's okay. We're glad you're here. We were all like you at one time. But there was a point in time in our past when we realized that we had sinned and broken God's laws. We can't even keep our own moral code. And there's a point in time in our past when we said, you know, there's a lot of questions I don't have the answers to, but I do believe that Jesus is God's Son and what the Bible says about Him is true, and that my spirit is eternal, and I'm either going to go to hell or to heaven, and I've got to make a decision And we've committed our life to follow Christ Jesus as our Savior. So we've all been where you are. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. It's interesting to me that the type of historians that like to debate about Jesus and the real historical Jesus, never debate the crucifixion. They're okay with the fact that he was brutally murdered. But they always debate the resurrection. Well, obviously that's a fact because the resurrection claim is much different than the crucifixion claim. Tens of thousands were crucified in this cruel form of punishment. But who else ever claimed to rise again from the dead? And so here we come with five reasons why Easter is not foolish Number one on your outline, well, it's not number one, it's just the first point, is that Jesus is the crucified Lord. Jesus is the crucified Lord. The angel said, who was crucified? For us, it's a symbol to be celebrated. We've got a cross here and a cross there and a cross there, and they're decorated. At one point in time, somebody said to me, "Um, Pastor Ann, why don't we have any crosses in our church? At which point I invited that person to come stand right here and look up. I'm standing right under a cross. Now you all see our ceiling that needs to be repaired. (sighs) We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll talk about it in a few weeks. But the largest cross in the building is right over my head as I preach. I don't know if the architect designed it that way or not, but the first time I walked in here and I looked around, I went, wow, look, there's a cross. The cross of Christ was a cruel thing, but God in His grace redeemed it and changed its meaning because Jesus did not stay on the cross and Jesus did not stay in the tomb. So the question you're asked there in your first point is, who did Jesus die for. Who did Jesus die for? Well, most of us would immediately say me. Some of us might say everybody. And some of us, depending on our theology, if we've studied a little more and if you're a certain type, might say, well, he died for some people, but not other people, or maybe I'm not sure. And this isn't a sermon to debate those sort of things, but to simply say that Jesus died for sinners and all of us are sinners. We've broken God's laws. If you turn over to First Peter chapter two, so if you've got your Bible with us and want to go towards the back there, towards First Peter, and this is one of those passages of Scripture that you you would do well to read at some other time because I can't exposit it now. First Peter chapter two and verse twenty one. Peter is making a case and stating in three different ways here why Jesus died. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So he died as an example for us. That you should follow in his steps. In other words, sacrificially giving ourselves for others. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered... He, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Speaking of God, the ultimate judge. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Righteousness. Why did Jesus die? That's your answer. So that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. Five reasons why Easter is not foolish? That's a big one. That we could have a different life. Not a foolish life, not a sinful life, but a righteous life because it's by His wounds we are healed. Jesus gave Himself for us to give us new life. That's the first reason why Easter is not foolish. The second reason why Easter is not foolish is that Jesus is the risen Savior. Jesus is the risen Savior. Now, I emphasize it by my voice, and you might put a box or a circle around the as well. There is no other risen Savior. The definite article, the. It's not he is a risen Savior, because there is plenty of them, and you can choose, you know. Kind of like when you go to the store and you've got to pick out socks. No, I don't need that kind, don't need that kind. Mm, I know I want some. Okay, yeah, this is, mm, that's not the right size. Oh, this is the perfect sock for me. There's not a bunch of risen saviors to choose from. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. Thankfully, he comes in one size fits all. Amen. And so that all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, that God loves you, and he sent Jesus to die for you, and he can save you from your sins, and he will. Save you from your sins. He is not here. Scripture says in verse 6. He has risen. So that asks or begs a question. What does Jesus' resurrection prove? I've written about that before. I've preached about that before. But just off the top of your head. You can probably imagine an answer. It proves that God keeps His promises. It proves that God has power. Promises and power. you got two Ps there, right? You can write those down. Promises and power. God keeps His promises. And God has power. That God is who He says He is. He'll do what He says He will do. And you can count on Him. Jesus, when He was alive and ministering, He raised people from the dead we portray Jesus raising Jairus's daughter from the dead on our stage we know the story of Lazarus Jesus friend who died and on the fourth day Jesus came and uh, raised him from the dead again but those are technically not resurrections technically speaking theologians call those resuscitations because they got life again but did Jairus' daughter live eternally without ever dying again? There was a day and time that she died. Did Lazarus die again, a regular earthly death? Yes. He died. So he was resuscitated and brought back to life at that point in time, but he got old and he died, or he had an accident and he died, or he got a disease and he died. Natural life happened, but with Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it is the one and only resurrection from the dead because it is eternal. He did not die again. He is still alive today. Amen. We serve a risen Savior, and Jesus' resurrection proves that God will keep his promises, and God has all All the power he needs to have. That's what Jesus' resurrection proves. And there's no foolishness in that. The third reason. The third reason. Why Easter is not foolish. Is that Jesus is the promise keeper. I've already said that one in my last point. But notice that phrase there. Let's read it again in verse 6. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. He had prophesied it. He had foretold it. You remember when he said, destroy this temple and on the third day it will be uh, built again. And they freaked out and they said, it took years to build this temple. They thought he was talking about the physical temple he was standing in. He wasn't. He was talking about his own body. It wasn't until after he was crucified, in the grave three days, and rose again, that they understood, oh, that's what he was talking about. Kind of like you and I, the aha moment, right? When you finally figure it out, when it finally clicks. Some of you, because today's April Fool's, and it's still kind of an early day, it's just ten nineteen in the morning, according to my watch, somebody sometime today is going to play an April Fool's prank on you. They're going to say something and you're going to believe it because you're a person that believes other people. Or you're going to see some advertisement for something and you're going to be like, ooh, that's good, I'm going to click that. And it's going to be like, April Fool's, you know. I mean, all of us are going to do it, even though I'm warning you about it right now, you're going to do it. And then you'll have the, aw, kind of that letdown. That's the opposite of the aha moment. The aha moment is generally positive. When you've been thinking about something. When you've been praying about something. When you've been uh, thinking, how does this work? How can I say this? How can I do this? And aha, the idea comes along. Jesus as the promise keeper, when he was still in the grave, the disciples had fear. The disciples had doubt. The disciples were in hiding. But when they found out he had risen from the dead, they... Were changed. Look at that latter part of verse 6. Come and see the place where he lay. Past tense. He's not laying there anymore. He rose from the grave. Past tense. Just as he said, past tense. These things have already happened, and in the Greek syntax, they've been accomplished once and for all. Done. Finished. You can't go back now. So here's your question. If Jesus is the promise keeper, what must I trust Jesus with? I debated should I use the word should or must But it dawned on me that most of us probably are sitting here this morning with a must. There's something that we haven't yet trusted Jesus with, that we know God has convicted us that we need to turn over to Him. And frankly, we may be even sinning against God because He's clearly revealed to us what we need to do and how we need to follow Him and how we need to obey. But because of our fear, we're not committed yet. So friends, I want to call you to remember the very first lines of this passage of Scripture. Do not be afraid. Everybody say it after me. Do not be afraid. Trust Him. He has all the power. And He keeps His promises. Why do I tell you all the time you need to read your Bible daily? You need to memorize your Bible? You need to meditate on your Bible? You need to journal about your Bible? Because these words are truth. And these words make all the difference for your life. Because they are the promises of God for you. They will strengthen you and teach you and encourage you. Because God is a promise keeper. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead demonstrates that promise. So that's our third reason. Your fourth reason? It's that Jesus is the gospel message. Jesus is the gospel message. Verse 7 says, Then go quickly and tell His disciples. Tell. We use a fancy word at church, evangelism. Evangelism is a smash-up of a couple other Greek words. "euangelizo" in Greek. And we've made it evangelism, almost just flipped it into English. And it means to tell the good news. And the good news we're talking about here is that Jesus has risen from the dead. That Jesus is not in His grave anymore. And because of that... He is who He says He is. He has all the power He says He has. And He can make a change in your life, just as He has in so many others' lives, if you will allow Him. And that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And Jesus is the gospel message. He's risen from the dead. So your application question says, how can I share Jesus' story? One thing you'll hear me say repeatedly in the weeks ahead, that I pray that we will begin to do differently as members of this church, as believers in Jesus, is share our personal faith. And in sharing our personal faith, tell people about what Jesus has done in our lives to make a difference. Tell them stories in the lives of people we know or those we've read But also that we might invite people to come to worship with us. Invite people to come to Sunday school with us. Invite people to come to Bible study with us. And invite people. Barna research tells us, Gallup research tells us, that 80% of folks responded in the past decades. If someone who knows them invites them to church, they'll come. How many people do you know that don't go to church regularly? How many invitations should you be making? What difference will that make in your life and their life? It could be eternal if you would just take the time to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And hey, why don't you come to my church where you can learn some more and meet some other cool people that will help you learn more and be your friend. The difference we can make when we share Jesus' story and when we take it a step further and invite people to church. Maybe you need to consider right now who it is that you need to share Jesus' story with. How can you do that? When will you do that? Hopefully you know why you should do that. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we need to share that with others. So let's look at our fifth and final point why Easter is not foolish, is that Jesus is the returning king. Jesus is the returning king. Now, I'm playing off this passage of Scripture, right? Where it says in verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. So Jesus was going to meet them, not there near Jerusalem, but... You know, a couple days' journey by foot up in the region of Galilee, nearby where Jesus was uh, raised, then you will see him. Now I have told you. So I'm playing off the idea that Jesus will be returning to life on earth for the disciples to meet him and see him there uh, with the greater idea that Scripture tells us about that Christ is coming back for all who have trusted in him. And he'll take us to heaven. But every person who's ever lived, when Christ's return and the end of time and life on earth as we know it, will be judged. The good and the bad. The righteous and the unrighteous. The sheep and the goats separated one from another. And scripture makes clear to us that Christ is the returning king and he will sit as Redeemer and Judge of all humanity. Are you ready? Have you trusted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? Do you know if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? And do you know if you die today and stand before Jesus when He returns, and He were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what you would say to Him? If you would say, well, I've been a good person or, you know, I go to church or I do this. All those things are great, but they fall short. They don't make it. It's only by grace through faith and saying, I've trusted Christ Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord that we will be given the gift of eternity in heaven. So your question asks, what can I expect from Jesus Pastor Ann, that's a pretty broad question. Yeah, it is. Because the Holy Spirit might tell you something different than He told me. But think about the things that we've already covered in this short passage of Scripture. About Him having power. About Him keeping His promises. About Him being the crucified Savior or Lord. And the gospel message. We can expect these things will always be true of him, and we can expect his character will be consistent. Can you imagine? You've walked with Jesus for a number of years. You've seen his humanity, his tiredness, and his hurt. You've seen every opportunity he had where he could be mean. He could be angry. He could take revenge. You've seen all of this and you've gone, Man, this guy is just different in the way he acts with other people. But in addition to that, you saw that he taught in a way like no one ever taught before. Yeah, he taught in a Jewish style where he would tell stories and ask questions. But he had authority and he had power. And even the Pharisees were like, "Mm -mm, don't want none of that, and just walked away. And you saw because of his teaching that crowds came to him. Wow, man, this guy is something else. But more than that, this is a guy... That can give sight to the blind. This is a guy that can raise the dead. This is a guy that can walk on water. And then they crucified him on a cross like a common criminal. And yeah, there was all that stuff he taught us at the Last Supper. That was good stuff, but man, he's gone and what in the world is going on here? And the despair and the confusion and the fear, only to show up at the tomb and find that the stones rolled away and he's not there. And there's an angel sitting on a rock saying, Don't be afraid. He's risen just as he said. Go and tell the disciples he'll, he's gone ahead and he'll meet them in Galilee. For those three days, you would feel mighty foolish. But on Easter Sunday morning, all your foolishness should be wiped away because Jesus is the risen Son of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father... I love that idea that as Jesus offered up his last breath on the cross, that all of hell started to rejoice, but all of heaven started to count to three. One, two days, three days. And Christ rose from the dead. So God, I thank you for your power. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you will give us faith. That even now, there's a person here who knows they need to commit their life to be a follower of Jesus. They need to admit that they've sinned. They need to say, yes, I believe Jesus is God's son as revealed in the Bible. And they need to confess Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And they're fearful of doing that because of what people will think or whatever other reason. Would you give them the courage to say yes today? And God, for those of us who are already followers of Christ, would you encourage us and convict us of how we might surrender and where we might serve and what we might do for you. We thank you, God, for your presence among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.